Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jacqueline Pless, who is Assistant Professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Her research interests are in the economics of innovation, energy, and environmental economics. Welcome, Jackie. Jacqueline. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your actually very recent papers came out this year, Are Complementary Policies Substitutes? Evidence from R&D Subsidies in the UK. Uh, you say governments often subsidize private R&D using both direct subsidies and tax incentives. And you have a framework here to assess uh, sort of the effectiveness of that policy. And uh, if I understand this correctly, Jacqueline, uh, you're coming up with sort of different effects based on the size of the firm. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. So I, what I do in this paper is I take a look at, um, so the, the background basically is that policymakers and governments in general, they, they implement various policies and subsidies and tax incentives in an effort to try to drive innovation and research and development in the, in the private sector. Um, yeah. So these, these come in various forms, um, but what is often kind of missed in the economics literature, so the economics literature is largely focused on trying to understand the direct effects of each one of these different potential policy levers, um, which has been phenomenal kind of uh, space in the econ literature um, so far. But what has largely gone missed is how these different mechanisms are interacting, even in practice in the way that they're designed, but also in the context of how um, firms might behave in response to the two when they do receive both, say, grants and tax credits. And so what I do in that paper is I, um, I try to take a look at or I estimate with uh, data from the UK, firms in the UK, I estimate the effect of essentially the interaction of those two different policies and then do it separately for, for small firms and larger firms since we would think that they kind of... Um, they face different constraints, financing constraints, and uh, so we might just think that they respond to these types of incentives differently. Okay, so so just for my own understanding, Jacqueline, R&D grants is basically an award uh, of cash the firm can use. 
uh, whereas uh, tax credits is something that uh, that's going to come back to them in credits after they have invested in R&D, right? How, how, mechanistically, how do these these two things work? Yeah, great question. It's always good to know these things up front. Um, yeah, so 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 grants. Uh, so these things do operate a little bit differently um, depending on the context and and the country and the policy program, um, but they generally follow um, the, the following type of format and and certainly do in the paper that I um, have written. So for direct grants, these exactly as you say, these would be kind of upfront um, direct cash payments, and they're usually allocated or determined based upon some type of competition that companies can enter in order to win some of these grant funds. So um, Innovate, Innovate UK is the program that I study, and in that context, they run various uh, competitions that can be kind of mission focused in the sense that some of them might be specifically targeting clean energy innovation or uh, health IT or something like that, or AI. And then any company that is interested in receiving grant funding for a project that they have um, in that space or one that they are trying to get off the ground in those spaces, they can essentially develop a project proposal, uh, which can entail, you know, kind of expected costs and investments associated with that project. And then um, there's some type of expert review uh, panel that will assess those proposals to choose some. Yeah. Um, and those then, yeah, mechanically would be kind of upfront direct cash payments. Uh, and then on the other hand, tax incentives or tax credits operate um, just as you uh, mentioned. So these are essentially kind of um, reductions on, on corporate tax liabilities and so, or corporate tax payments. And um, so essentially one way that, and how it typically it works is that firms would invest in research and development and then claim some portion of it back um, via the tax credit. In the context of the UK, um, firms that are not profit making and therefore not paying uh, tax yeah. also can uh, claim some type of payable credit. Uh, so, oh. so there is um, one of the nice features of the, the tax incentive in the UK is that it allows um, loss making firms to still benefit. Yeah, that, that's what I was about to ask. So uh, tax credits are useful only if you are paying taxes. But in this case, uh, in the UK case, it's almost like credits you can bank uh, and you can essentially use it to um, uh, use it in the future when you make profits. Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. Um, but even the, in the case of, of the payable credit, which would come after the fact uh, or after a firm has invested for a year, um, the tricky thing here, the thing that's very different about the uh, tax credits relative to the grants is that it's still not this upfront payment, right? So any firm or you know, company, especially smaller firms um, that may not have enough internal resources to start a new innovation project, or perhaps they're facing uh, particularly costly external finance because of being small and not having a successful track record, they might... Be part, they might face particular difficulties with getting projects off the ground without having some type of upfront grant. And so that's kind of um, a, a bit of the mechanism that's behind the story in the paper is that small firms do face those types of constraints, whereas larger firms um, on average do not. Okay, so, so, so the model is looking at uh, if you, if uh, as a firm, if I receive 
uh, a R&D uh, grant as well as a tax credit uh, type program. Uh, what you're saying is that if, if I'm a small firm and I have cash flow constraints, the R&D grant gives me sort of a boost uh, to, to get into, um, get into R&D uh, and the tax credits are sort of an after effect um, you know, so sort of positive effect on the firm. So they can make use of both of these things in a complementary way. Is that, is that the idea for a small firm? Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, but actually, I mean, so the starting point, the starting question here is actually just about in what direction does it go? So like, is that interaction a complementarity versus something that's more of a, a dampening effect or a substitutability of the two incentives? And so from that, yeah. that kind of starting point, um, the question then is, uh, so when I think about complements and substitutes in this context, it's about um, the marginal effect of each policy on some outcome, like a firm's R&D um, uh, expenditures. And, and so what I, I look at for smaller firms as well as larger firms is kind of the effect of grant funding um, how that effective grant funding on R&D expenditures changes when a tax credit increases or when they receive more tax credit funding. And I find that that interaction or receiving both of them is um, positive so that the tax credit is enhancing the marginal effect of grants for those smaller firms, uh, which can be interpreted as uh, the policies being complements. Uh, whereas I find the exact opposite for the larger firms. And so that that substitutability for the larger firms, it's essentially saying that um, the effect of grants on R&D expenditures is dampened, uh, cut in half, actually. So it's quite large um, when those those larger firms receive more like higher tax credits. So. So, so to have a dampening effect of an R&D grant, the large firm needs to refuse it, right? How, 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 will, how will it dampen? Not necessarily, right? So um, this is kind of what's interesting is that, so mechanically, um, so it's not that they would refuse it. It's just that mechanically, the way that tax credits work would mean that the firm is essentially displacing um, displacing where they're getting their subsidies. So, uh -huh. so it would be that, so mechanically in, in most countries, um, the as you you cannot claim tax credits on any R&D that is already subsidized by a grant. And so yeah. if, a, if a firm kind of receives more grant funding, then that's gonna mechanically reduce how much tax credit subsidies they can they receive um, after the fact. And if these, and so what I, I basically find is that, um, so if, if you have that type of relationship and that it's not that an extra tax credit is enhancing additional R&D, um, yeah. then the firms are essentially just substituting these dollar for dollar. That means that it doesn't matter what form it comes in for those larger firms, they're just gonna take it either way. Um, and so increasing the tax credit rate for those larger firms is inefficient from an economics perspective because it's essentially just um, subsidizing inframarginal expenditures. And by that, I mean, <laughs> it's basically using public money to, to subsidize what otherwise firms would do privately without that extra subsidy. Mm. So um, I'm just trying to understand it you know, from an abstract perspective. So uh, are we saying that there's some sort of R&D capacity that 
for a small firm, the combination of grant and credits seemed to move the firm uh, toward utilizing the entire R&D capacity. Whereas for a large firm, if their capacity is sort of fixed, uh, they're going to play with these two levers to, to essentially do the R&D, but you're not going to get any higher R&D. Is that mm-hmm. a way to understand? Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly it. Um, and, and so it's, it's not that for those larger firms, it's necessarily decreasing their R&D altogether. It's just that it's dampening the effect of grant funding. Um, so overall, what that is saying is that they just do not need the extra subsidy funding in order to, to invest at, at some fixed level. Um, and it means that, yes, they are already investing in all um, opportunities or all projects that they would want to invest in. And so they're essentially just taking that subsidy money and not using it for R&D. They start using it for other things. Um, whereas for the smaller firms, um, what it appears what appears to be happening is that these these grants are allowing them to get new projects off the ground. So these grants can go towards things like new machinery, um, equipment, things of that nature, whereas the tax credits primarily go towards labor. So um, can you hire more engineers and scientists? And so what appears to be happening is that these grants are getting those projects off the ground. They're able to purchase new machinery. And then this opens up some resources and space for the firm to then hire more engineers and scientists that can then put that machinery to work. Yeah, I mean, this seems like there's some policy implications, right? So if if you are a public um, agency that's funding R&D, um, you have to really study sort of the capacity of the firm uh, to conduct R&D. Uh, it's not like uh, if you give the money, they can magically <laughs> uh, magically find R&D projects, um, right? That is that the issue? Yeah, there are, um, there are a lot of challenges and also implications that come out of this work specifically, but I, just step, taking a step back, one of the, the biggest challenges that I think kind of public funding bodies face is in evaluating what projects or firms should be um, should be funded in the first place. You know, it's, it's very yeah. difficult to identify what is going to be a winner versus not. Um, and it's, it's just a matter of uncertainty and um, being able to assess who has the highest chances and for tackling the issue of interest. Um, and then at the same time, you know, uh, public funding bodies have an incentive to fund things that are successful because they want to you know, make their constituents happy um, and showing that the money is actually paying off. So there's a lot going on there in terms of identifying and funding the, quote, right projects. Um, but one thing that, you know, from an efficient kind of economics perspective or the way that funding would be optimally allocated would be towards the projects or the firms that um, would not be able to invest in this profitable and socially beneficial type of innovation without that subsidy. And so it yeah. turns and so that could be larger firms, um, but it just turns out on average and especially in the context that I'm studying um, that it is the case for the smaller firms, um, which I think is intuitive, whereas uh, the larger firms tend to be able to access other forms of, of capital and finance in order to do it. Yeah, so did you find a difference in sort of the types of R&D, whether it's basic R&D or more practical uh, or late stage R&D? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it was really difficult to study this question with the data that I had available. Uh, it's 
getting data to study innovation from an economics perspective is <laughs> it's already really difficult to start. Um, we have like increasing increasingly more access to these things, um, but it, it's tricky for various reasons. So uh, I was able to study this a little bit for the larger firms, but I'm not super confident in the results given how like small the sample ended up being. And um, for the, the smaller firms, we just didn't have enough uh, data on each of the firms to be able to differentiate that. Um, you know, my, my instinct would be that the grants are more effective, you know, they're driving things in the, the basic R&D level, um, whereas uh, tax credits are a little bit, um, they can target more applied work. But at the same time, I would say, you know, we really don't have evidence on that yet, actually. Like, this is a, an open question is what subsidies and tax incentives can drive different types of R&D and innovation? Right. Yeah. And, and for the public funding agency, as you said, the challenge is going to be, you know, sort of um, looking at the return of that investment. And and because firms are not completely transparent in terms of their opportunities and, and essentially chance of success and ultimate societal benefits, uh, any sort of allocation without that information is going to be inefficient. So, uh, this is not in the paper, Jacqueline. I was wondering, you know, is there another way of doing this? Is some sort of competition? Uh, you know, there has to be some incentives at the firm level uh, to actually pick up the right R&D projects, uh, you know, to, to conduct rather than just looking for free money. Uh, are there other ways of doing this? Yeah, it's, um, and... There are, uh, so that's that's the easy yeah. answer. Is of course there there are always other ways to think about designing these uh, programs and policies, and this is certainly one of the the biggest challenges right now is figuring out exactly how to design them so that they work, um, and what like understanding why they work so that we can continue to inform policy design in that way. Uh, but what is difficult is that we it's really it as I had mentioned it's hard to generate evidence on what does work and why, and so we haven't been able to study too many other forms so far. Um, there are things like direct kind of allocations that come out of budgets, um, and that would be like kind of even more so on the politically chosen side of things. Um, yeah. Whereas I think, you know, and then you can even design different grant, even within the context of a grant program being based on competitions, you could design this so that it is um, very technology neutral, for instance, you're just trying to solve some broader problem uh, and then inviting all different types of technology proposals and things of that nature, uh, or you could be very technology specific. Um, but in terms of trying to generate, like identify whether, you know, so a firm is always going to have an incentive to try to get free money, but there's, yeah. it's hard to justify why they wouldn't already be investing in those things without, um, uh, why they wouldn't already be investing in those things without the subsidy unless they they already were right so like if a if a company has this project and it's going to be a profitable project or that's what they're projecting it to be um then they should already be investing in it and if not then that means that there is you know some need for a subsidy if there is promise so the role of government policy and subsidization in this context is to really um help help support the innovation that's going to drive or bring a lot of societal benefit. 
Yeah, so th- that's why in this context, you were also looking at sort of capital market imperfections, right? Um, uh, to see if that, that will actually explain it. Um, what did you find there? Right, so that's exactly kind of what does explain this, this idea around whether firms can essentially access cheap, cheaper forms of, of capital in order to finance these things. And um, whether... The, uh, I don't directly test the role of, of financing constraints in this context, but the way in which it can under, um, explain the results is that uh, essentially there there can be these information asymmetries between firms and potential investors. So a small little startup or a firm without a ton of experience in a certain space, they they might appear to be riskier investments to say venture capitalists or something, and therefore then face a higher cost of capital. Whereas a large firm that's been in existence for a long time and has a bunch of patents that shows it's very innovative, uh, that firm might be able to access kind of very low cost of capital. And so the idea is that when we find these very large positive effects of different subsidies on a firm's R&D expenditures, this is um, taken as evidence that the, the firms are facing these financing constraints when there's that positive interaction, I should say. So that positive interaction effect essentially um, comes out of the fact that these firms are otherwise facing financing constraints. Yeah. So I also wondered, Jacqueline, that um, do you see some sort of a public-private partnership um, uh, you know, in the funding arena, the, the the public entity, the problem they have is that they don't really have much transparency. They probably don't have sufficient capabilities from a financing perspective to assess returns and so on. Um, but but if you say, you know, a firm gets only half the funding from the public source provided they get a private entity fund the other half, then you can probably bring in a, a much higher level of um, scrutiny to, the, to those investments, right? Yeah, so there are a bunch of questions right now about what, what types of different partnerships might be the most effective um, and beneficial in terms of either increasing transparency or, or enforcement of making sure that the, the funds are spent in the way that's promised. And so, so certainly... The fir- like mo- most private firms that are investing in R&D are eventually aiming to, to secure that kind of private finance. Um, and so one of the potential kind of measures of success of a, an upfront grant from the, the government would be, okay, does this then allow the firm to secure follow-on funding afterwards from a venture capitalist or something? And so that certainly is kind of you know, where we're hoping to go. It's getting getting firms over this barrier of not being able to invest in the first place. And then once you're over that that kind of market failure, we would say, um, then uh, like letting the market pick up on this and um, private investors to come in. Another interesting kind of model around uh, public-private partnerships that I haven't seen, um, I'm sure there is some evidence out there on this, but I'm not so sure. Uh, I've just anecdotally seen some examples of how, say, a big bank can um, can partner with a national lab that can also partner with a, a small startup where each of these different organizations has brings something different to the table. Um, so, so the financer, you know, the finance, the banks can bring together um, 
and not just the capital, but also maybe some guidance and mentorship on how to how to manage a company, whereas a national lab might then provide the firm with um, the, the lab space to test out their new ideas, right? So there's these different kind of complementary resources and assets that each party can bring to the table to, to help accelerate um, the process. Yes, so in conclusion, uh, Jacqueline, will I be correct in saying that the larger the firm, the less likely there is a capital market constraint for that firm to pursue R&D. And so the larger the firm, the lower the need for uh, sort of R&D grants. <laughs> and can we make that conclusion? I would be hesitant to make that conclusion um, in a broadly speaking way. I, I would say that that is the conclusion from, this, from my paper and my study and the programs that I study. Um, but the, what the nice societal benefit that comes out of innovation of any type and um, larger firms are particularly larger spenders on R&D is that all research and development, all innovation drives society forward. They, they have no. these knowledge spillovers um, or they produce no. this additional knowledge that other firms and entities can then build upon. And so all R&D is going to be, or not all, a lot of R&D is going to be um, contributing very positively to, to society and progress. Um, and so th it's just that there's an efficient way to do it. And so the, the key conclusion that comes out of this work is not about whether we should or should not fund large firms. Um, it's more that what we do need is both mechanisms, both grants and tax credits uh, for the smaller firms. Um, well, the way we would think about complements is that neither is going to, to work unless they both exist. Whereas for the larger firms, we just need one or the other. Um, the work cannot speak to which one, but it's saying that as soon as you have both, it's, it's inefficient. And so I think a, a really key takeaway here um, that applies in so many different policy contexts is that you, you know, a lot of policies and incentives and subsidies are designed um, in silos. And so the, the grant making funding body might be not talking to um, the tax, you know, the, the tax admitted, like whoever's designing these particular taxes. And so without considering how these two mechanisms are interacting, we just don't have a good sense of how each one should be designed. And so um, mm -hmm. there just needs to be a bit more cohesiveness in the way that the policy mix is designed overall. Right, right. Yeah, so you have another paper, um, this sort of related subject, uh, bringing rigor to energy innovation policy evaluation. Um, you say clean energy innovation is pivotal for low cost energy sector decarbonization, mm -hmm. substantial policy research and development funding is spent on energy innovation. Uh, generating more evidence on which support mechanisms most effectively drive green energy innovations and why could uh, improve their design moving forward. So, 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 so what do you find here in terms of existing um, R&D um, uh, funding and, and how those things are used in clean energy? Yeah, so... Um, just taking one one step back first, so a lot of my my work does focus on specifically kind of innovation for for social progress, which can include healthcare, education, anything that's reducing inequalities more broadly or poverty, um, and then specifically on energy and environmental innovation. And so, in that context, we think about you know needing to transition the electricity sector and transportation to, towards cleaner 
uh, resources um, in the context of climate change, of course. And, and in doing so, um, although the costs of so many different technologies have really come down massively over the last 10 years, we still need a lot of innovation, not just in technology itself, but also in the, the business models and in policy itself. And, um, and in order to kind of achieve this totally net zero um, energy and transportation and manufacturing sector or world. Uh, and so, so what we do need to think about now from an economics perspective and a policy perspective is how to really design the policies or the incentives or the the institutions that can help foster that that can increase the not just the level of innovation that's happening as a whole but to also steer the direction of that innovation towards clean energy rather than dirty energy or towards um, innovation that protects environmental systems rather than harms them and and so yeah. that's really the key except for that we don't have we, we have remarkably little evidence so far on what policies, what incentives uh, can achieve that and why. And so that paper is largely around, um, well, stating that <laughs> and then and then just drawing the attention of um, the energy researchers in particular towards uh, the, the methods and the data that we typically need to use in order to, to make these evaluations and how we, there are certain lessons we can draw from, say, the broader innovation literature, but there are some characteristics about the energy sector that just make it a bit different and we still need to really understand what policies work and why. Yeah, I mean, energy is so complex. Uh, there's so many different modalities um, and th their effectiveness in the subjective of decarbonization. Um, they, they have very, very different, uh, different effects. So, so in some sense, uh, would you say we are lacking some sort of, you know, economic, holistic economic metric um, such that we can, we can compare? Uh, different alternatives, or does that exist already? Yeah, so in, I would say for innovation broadly, um, there are some of these measures that I think are comparable and measurable and uh, quantifiable. And what's tricky about the energy sector is that those tend to not apply quite as much, and we do still need some better measures. So what I mean by that is um, for innovation broadly, we can look at things like a firm's R&D expenditures or their patenting behavior and things like that. But the, in the energy sector, so you know, there's, the energy sector is a highly, highly regulated environment um, where it's a commodity market. There are so many different things like where innovation may be occurring, but it might not show up in the form of patenting. Um, and, and this is especially yeah. true moving towards clean energy innovation, where so much of um, the innovation that's happening and that we do need moving forward is, is a bit more digital and software and IT related, because we need to better understand how to integrate renewable energy into the grid. Um, and so what's, re and, and sorry, so the, the reason that that becomes more difficult to measure is because a lot of the, say, the patents that come out of that type of innovation will be just kind of marked as being, um, or like defined as being about say IT or software broadly. And we don't have a very easy way of detecting which of those patents are particularly important for energy. 
And so, so there are some ways we can think about measuring innovation outcomes in the energy sector um, from, say, a cost reduction perspective. I think that's one uh, pretty direct way to do it um, in terms of yeah. the, the cost of the technology itself. Um, but then there's also other things in terms of, say, you know, emissions reductions. Is this system getting more efficient? Are we um, doing this better? Are the, the actual... Um, you know, are we transitioning to this uh, kind of cleaner environment? Are we providing a better quality of electricity service? And so that's where measuring innovation in the energy sector does get a little bit more complex. Yeah, um, you know, you, you mentioned digitalization of the electricity sector. There are a lot of innovation going on, smart homes, um, smart meter, and so on. You know, just like in a large company, um, oftentimes a lot of metrics, um, and uh, it's unclear if you know if you have hundred different performance metrics, whether you can actually utilize it in any, you know, <laughs> any better decision making framework. I often found that it's a lot easier if you have one or two uh, holistic sort of metric, and so it seems to me that in the area of energy. It's decarbonization has to be one of the primary goals, right? So couldn't we measure any innovation, any R&D, any patent in that arena uh, based on its effect on, um, you know, decarbonization in some way or that is, that is too... Uh, too no, big? no, that's definitely the right starting point. And this is what um, I, as well as some others, have been doing so far. Uh, I'm just in, in the light of... Uh, criticizing my own work and wanting to advance things further, I would say we still need more. But absolutely. So a good starting point would be, um, you know, can we differentiate what firms are clean firms for like they're innovating in the clean space versus not? And then we can observe their R&D expenditures. We can, you know, also just there are ways of classifying patents themselves as being those that are associated with ener uh, clean energy versus dirty um, and I guess the tricky thing is that with the patents, I, there's just a good chance that we're missing out on a lot of the innovation that is ha like in terms of measuring it and understanding it um, on the energy side when it is a bit more software or IT oriented. Um, and the reason why that's important is it, because if we're trying to understand the impact of some policy or subsidy on an innovation outcome, we might just be massively understating an effect uh, or overstating a different effect if we're not measuring the outcome appropriately. And, and so, right. so, yeah, looking at patents and R&D expenditures, um, that's certainly part of the story. But then the rest of what comes out afterwards is, you know, are these are startups um, successful? Are they continuing to secure their own finance or are they actually commercializing? the technologies. Um, one of the biggest challenges about innovation in the energy sector is the very long timeline um, between initial R&D and when you actually get a technology to market. It's, it's much longer than in most other sectors. And um, understanding how to, to reduce that timeline so that um, technologies are commercialized faster, uh, that's, that's a big question. But it also then requires being able to measure commercialization in a, a meaningful way as well. Yeah, you know, I was just wondering, Jacqueline, you know, uh, there's a whole supply chain issue here, right? So from production to transmission to storage to use uh, of electricity. And so, you know, from producing and consuming an electron, at any point in that supply chain, you could, you could make an innovation 
And the benefit of that innovation uh, is sort of the function of how much it affects that supply chain. And so, so that makes it slightly different from a lot of the other industries, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it makes it different in terms of how, how the innovation kind of per, um, uh, filters throughout the society. So like one thing that we might be really interested in then is understanding, um, is making sure that we're properly quantifying the benefits of say a downstream innovation, um, if it's also then, um, or upstream. So as, if it's affecting then innovation in one of the other parts of uh, the whole process or the whole supply chain, um, as well as producing additional benefits to society, then we should quantify that because that would better justify additional subsidies towards whatever innovation is creating those additional uh, spillovers, for instance. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, so it's really in, uh, important to understand that it is different um, in the energy sector. And it, it also just highlights how much we do need innovation at so many different levels and how different um, incentives and subsidy schemes and things of that nature are going to be appropriate at different points, too. Um, I can't say that I know which one is most appropriate at all different points, but, um, you know, we, we do still need a tremendous amount of innovation on on, say, both the production side and the consumption side and the how do we get this power to consumers in a higher quality and cleaner way. Um, there's just so much that we still need to learn. Yeah, and, and I often felt, you know, from a public policy perspective, sometimes policymakers get very excited and they go after, you know, the, the latest and greatest. Let's say, you know, suppose I make a statement that solar is important for this problem. And then I start funding solar, I start funding innovation in solar. But unless I have a standardized way to measure uh, solar against something else, um, you know, it, it won't be sort of a systematic decision, right? And I think this industry is very prone to that type of, uh, that type of public funding, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um... Yeah, the, I mean, and you can imagine coming up with some kind of systematic measures that would be comparable, I, I guess, between different energy technologies, for instance, the costs of the their actual costs or how much they're going to reduce emissions um, or what's the, you know, kind of what do we think about the, the diffusion rate that might follow. But what is really tricky in energy and probably across the board is just that it's really hard to predict what, um, or to, to choose winners essentially, like why, why would we choose solar yeah. over another, um, especially without knowing, you know, we don't know the future, we don't know what's still to come, like maybe that we would end up locking in solar um, when we shouldn't be locking it in. Uh, and so, so yeah, there, there are a lot of challenges there with choosing, kind of choosing the right technology, uh, I guess. And in, I think, you know, from an optimal economic, perspective, uh, we would say, you know, keep these things tech neutral, let the market figure it out, let people compete, like, even if you're subsidizing things. Um, but given the timeline and the urgency of, of climate change and the fact that we do need to make significant advances soon, um, this starts to justify things that are a little bit more either technology or problem specific. Um, and so this is this is where it gets really tricky, and um, there's so many different incentives that policymakers face. Uh, and also, I should, you know, as an economist, I should always say that um, implementing a carbon price and at the right level 
uh, is kind of a first order thing that we need to do to start steering the direction of innovation. Um, and that's without needing to choose a technology. At that point, you're just, um, you know, you're making it more expensive uh, to purchase you know, fossil fuel, essentially, or to consume fossil. And therefore, there's more of an incentive to innovate in clean energy. So that would be a very kind of neutral way to do it. It's just that um, politically, it's been very difficult to implement a carbon tax, at least in this country. Yeah, you know, you need some sort of currency and you need some sort of a market that drives uh, decisions because it's just too complex. I remember, and uh, innovation comes in all sorts of different areas. I remember the Secretary of Energy, uh, Professor Chu, this was some time ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, suggested that, um, you know, we just uh, paint the roads and the rooftops white and that alone has actually a measurable <laughs> impact <laughs> on farming. And uh, perhaps, you know, that's not artificial intelligence, um, but it, it could have a tangible effect. So innovation cannot be really compartmentalized into, you know, sort of the latest and greatest. Absolutely. Effect. It comes in all different forms and, you know, we need it all. We, you know, we, the, the more we can do on all of those other things, the less that we, we need in terms of, um, or the closer we are to really driving, you know, the tech innovation to get get us to the place where we need to be. Uh, so, for instance, if if every home was retrofitted to be like um, very efficient, then that's going to greatly reduce energy consumption, and then that's going to reduce the amount of power that we need on the grid to begin with, and therefore the need for fossil. So it's it's really that innovation and kind of investment can happen at so many different levels, and the more that we can achieve. Um, kind of the the you know the cheaper ways of doing that the better, uh, and then that just reduces the further need for additional innovation to address uh, what remains. And um, yeah, that's exactly right. So, so in conclusion, Jacqueline, um, what is your sense? You know, you're doing a lot of work in energy and innovation. What's your sense? This uh, environmental discontinuity that we are facing. Uh, are we moving in the right direction? Do you think? Do you think we'll solve this problem? Um, so, do you mean politically? Uh, no, I, I meant you know just from a technical perspective. You know, decarbonization, global warming, um, polit political things are difficult to sort of uh, speculate on, but. From a technical perspective, do you think we have the opportunity to solve the problem or, or the, the window has no, been closed? No, the window hasn't been closed. Um, may, maybe I'm an optimist, yeah. but I, I think that anything is possible <laughs> if we want to achieve it. And um, not only should we, we have to, uh, we have to achieve it or else, you know, the world's going to burn. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we need to, there is plenty of opportunity. Um, it's about not just you know, accelerating innovation as a whole. It's about trying to steer its direction. And, and then we'd be, we're, we are moving in the right direction. Um, that is very clear. The fact that the costs of renewables and things have come down massively, the fact that we have uh, countries that have historically not um, taken action on environmental issues now are and are starting to build those recognitions and plans into their um, policies and their strategies and um, the Big businesses are doing the same, so I think we're we're certainly going in the right direction, and um, I think it's it seems like it's starting to speed up. The last couple of years has just been um, so much that's happened 
climate-wise, that it's just becoming so much more of a salient issue to those that possibly were not so engaged with it in the first place. So I think we're moving in the right direction, and, and I'm certainly optimistic. Yeah, let's be optimistic. This has been great, uh, Jacqueline. Thanks so much for spending Absolutely. time. Absolutely. This was uh, a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.